Welcome to Carlsbad Bible Church. We're excited that you're here with us today. We pray that uh, you have a, a, a good time worshiping with us in um, giving and worship and the preaching of God's Word. So if you would, let's go ahead and turn our Bibles to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4. All the way to the back of the book, right before Revelations, 1 John. All right, we're going to read verses 4, 1 through 6. It says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. But this you know, the Spirit of God, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God, this is the spirit of Antichrist, of which you have heard that it is coming, and now it is in the world. You are from God, little children, and and have overcome them. Because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world, they are from the world. Therefore, they speak as from the world, and the world hears them. We are from God. The one who knows God hears us. The one who is not from God does not hear us. From this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for today, Lord. We just thank you that you are the God of truth, Lord, and that we, Lord, serve you. And Lord, I just pray that you protect us from going astray. Help us um, from uh, being overcome by any temptation or sin, Lord. Help us to... Defend the truth, Lord, in a time of uh, confusion in this world, Lord, where we can't even decide what gender we are or, or uh, you know, dividing by racial things. But, Lord, I just ask that you just protect us, Lord, and guide us as we continue to grow in you, Lord. I pray for today, Lord, that um, you be with your servants, Lord, who will be teaching your word today. And I just pray that, uh, that you lead them with the Holy Spirit, Lord. You guide them. And I pray, Lord, this morning that you... Um, that you work in our hearts, Lord, as we continue to worship and serve you, Lord. We thank you, Lord. We love you. We pray in your name. Amen. Father, as we come together, just um, bearing in mind these truths that we have just sung to you, God, the great reminders that we have through the text of these songs, uh, may you be glorified in our continuance of worshiping you through the instruction of your word. May we divide it rightly. Uh, may we be faithful to it. And God, we come to you thanking you for your faithfulness to us, a faithfulness that is unwavering, that cannot be compared to a human standard, that you set the standard for us, God. Help us to align our thoughts with your thoughts here today. And I pray that this message would be of you, God, things that are not of you would just disappear from my notes, from my instruction, Lord, and only the things that are the essence of you would remain there that would take root in our hearts and help us just to grow more in the knowledge of who you are and our understanding of you, Lord. And we use that to evaluate our lives against, that you would just mold us and shape us more into the image of your son, Jesus Christ. And we pray, God, for your will to be done here and that you're glorified in all of it. In Jesus' name, amen. And you may be seated. As you take your seats, take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Philippians, chapter 3. Many of you were here over the past few Sundays. We took some time away from the study of Philippians and looked at the vision and values that we have for our church, and then Ray brought us back into the book of Philippians last Sunday, 
and we're going to be continuing in this book until we're done. Most of you who are very familiar with our method of teaching here know that it is expository and that we will teach it chapter by chapter and verse by verse. We don't want to miss out on any instruction that God has for us. Um, I must admit that for this particular chapter of Philippians, I've been looking forward to this one passage for some time now, and I wanted to race ahead and just get through the stuff leading up to that chapter and really focus on the things that I felt were uh, really meaningful to me. But then, in my study of the preceding verses, as it often goes, there is a lot to unpack leading into these verses that I really uh, treasure from God's Word, but we should just treasure all of it. And so because we do teach expository, we're not going to skip over anything, and we find ourselves only in verses 1 through 3 this morning, but I will go ahead and read through verses 1 uh, through through 11. So Philippians 3, 1 through 11 is where we are this morning, and then confining the teaching more to verses 1 through 3. So follow along with me. Hopefully I've given you enough time to find it in your word. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So we have read the word of the Lord Let us now turn once again to the Lord of the Word in prayer, asking that he bless this time of study. Ray, would you do that for us, please? Amen. Thank you. So we read that entire passage of Philippians, and I did that to see, you know, how Paul makes this triumphant proclamation here, that he's contemplating who he once was, how successful that he was in being one who abided by the law. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees, so that meant that he kept the law to the letter, and how willing he was to lay that aside for the sake of Christ and because of Christ and what all Christ had done in his life in converting him and renewing him. And now he has been set on this course to evangelize, to preach the gospel wherever he was. 
So that's what I want to jump to, but before we get there, we have some really rich text that I think helps us with the context of what will come in the next few verses. Verses 1 through 3 of this chapter speak of a joy that is had in Christ that is over and above any joy that can be found in this world. And we can be sure when we have apprehended this joy, when we are living out this joy in our lives, there are going to be those in service of the enemy that will try to steal this joy from us. And so we need to be mindful of that, and we need to be watchful about these things. And so really what Paul is getting at is not to let anyone rob this joy from you, and particularly a a group of people that we're going to single out here in just a moment after we've kind of read back into these verses. So remember last week that we had some really excellent examples, human examples, provided to us in Ray's teaching, and these human examples are not Christ themselves. We shouldn't elevate them anywhere near that level, but we should be reminded that God working in them to make them more Christ-minded serve as good reminders for us and as good examples that we too can follow. Uh, we had the example of Paul presented to us. Paul will, uh, he, he showcases his life, not just the good things. He puts out there even the bad things about himself so that he is on the same level as we are, but he is one who is Christ-minded in the way that he lives and the way that he teaches. We also saw that in Timothy as being an example for us and Epaphroditus, who Paul mentions by name also in this letter. But now he goes into another, another section, and that might be misunderstood as the closing of his letter. Come back there with me. When he says, finally, my brothers rejoice in the Lord. And when you hear me say finally, or Ray say finally in your teaching, you're saying, okay, well, he's finally getting wrapped up. Like, you know, now I can start to prepare to to leave here and get lunch. But that's not what Paul's doing here because we see we're only halfway into the book, halfway into the letter. So probably the better translation of this word Rather than seeing it as finally, like a closing of a letter, it's better understood as furthermore, or in addition to, so then. One commentator uses a phrase to interpret Paul's finally here. He says, as regards the rest of the matter, (laughs) this is what I'm going to say. And also that he is addressing those who are brethren. So when Paul is using the word brethren, he is meaning those that are of the faith those that have received salvation in Jesus Christ. They are fellow members of the family of God, and so he is addressing those in the body of Christ. And this idea of rejoicing, this command that Paul is is saying to us, is one of those biblical truths that Paul really wants to set into the Christian mind. If you think about one who rejoices in the Lord, there may be certain Christians that come to mind. And I think maybe that's why we had these portrayal of, of human examples for us in Ray's teaching last week, that we can see them exhibit characteristics of Christ, and one of those is that they have this character, this attitude of joy. Joy, we know, is a fruit of the Spirit, and so a believer that is filled with the, the Holy Spirit is able to have this joy, able to rejoice in the Lord. You might call this a mark of one who has a spiritual life. There is something about one who exhibits joy in their life. 
if you look at the fruits of the Spirit that are described by Paul in Galatians chapter 5, actually it doesn't say fruits, but fruit of the Spirit is love, and then the one that follows afterwards is joy, and then there's peace and patience. Now, I don't know if there's a hierarchy to that, but we see Paul's emphasis being so much on joy throughout the book of Philippians. You've apprehended joy. We know what it is to produce or uh, love in our life, love being the first fruit, and then what follows is joy, joy in the life of a believer. And we are being commanded by Paul to rejoice, but notice that he combines it with rejoice in the Lord or rejoice in Jesus Christ. It says, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. And this is a joy that is connected to relationship. I suppose that many of us, and we can probably, you know, fake joy, which I wouldn't call true joy, really a happiness. We can put a smile on our face and fake what is going on on the inside, but because that is all about a situational or an event-based kind of joy, which isn't biblical joy at all. Happiness is connected to an emotional response that is an event or circumstance-based. It's about the situation that you find yourself in. We hear these words like happenstance or happening, very closely associated with the word happiness, and probably they link together. One you know, relates to the other that in order to have happiness, that this has to happen. And you can see the connection there. That is not true biblical joy. Biblical joy is an overcoming kind of joy, which is why it must be connected to relationship with God. Rejoice in the Lord that it has to be of a supernatural uh, source. And we know that God is supernatural. We know that because Paul is able to write this in a tremendously difficult, bad situation. Yet he was able to be an example of one who had joy, one who rejoiced in the Lord no matter the situation that he found himself in. Rejoicing in Christ was a reality for Paul. He isn't just giving this lip service. He is living it. Earlier in in Philippians, we kind of went back and talked about this joy, and Paul was having this joy because he was seeing his time in prison as being purposed by God to advance the gospel to others. And he was finding that that was joyful to him. He was rejoicing that. So we can see that joy is the byproduct of a loving, living relationship with the Lord. Because it was not in a situation, but it was in a Savior. A Savior who is God. A God who is unchanging. A God who is always faithful. That is the reason that Paul was able to say, rejoice in the Lord. We know for Jesus that He also, being God, is unchanging. Hebrews 13.8 says that He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Paul will say in verse 11 of chapter 4, not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I have learned in every situation always to be content. So there is an intentionality in this kind of of joy. We must look to the source of the one who is in us to produce this wellspring of joy within our lives. And Jesus describes himself as a vine in John chapter 15. 
and we are the branches that are in the vine, but the branches just don't haphazardly hang on to the vine and just be somewhat connected, but it says that we are abiding in him as the vine. John 15, verse 4 says, Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. The sense of abiding in Christ is being like that branch that is tapped in to the source of everything that we need for survival, for our spiritual life. Christ is the one who is the the roots, and we are seeking and looking to him as the source of that sustaining life within us, that joy that we need that overcomes, that love that we need that overcomes the circumstances of the world. So there is intentionality in that. To abide in the vine doesn't just mean that we're put on autopilot and we just sit there and we just let God do the rest. There's intentionality in that. We, go, we must go to the Lord in prayer. We must spend time in His Word. That is what it looks like to seek Him as the source, to abide in Him as the vine and us as the branches. So when Paul commands here to rejoice in the Lord, he is using the present active voice here. And that can be interpreted as to be continually rejoicing. Not just in a moment, not just in a couple of days out ahead, but this is a life experience of joy. As I mentioned, we're not just robots turned on for rejoicing and then we never are going to be challenged by wanting to shut it down or not wanting to grow in it, but we are continually being sanctified in our maturity in Christ. As it grows, so should this joy within us. We begin to grow in our learning to live in the reality of this rejoicing in the Lord. I think First Samuel um, gives us a, a reminder of David and how he was intentional also in this. It wasn't like he was just the superhuman that could always be joyful. We see him very clearly in the Psalms uh, expressed to his Lord and also to us who are the readers the struggle that he had in life, that he was human as well. But in 1 Samuel 36, I like what David, or what it says of David here. 1 Samuel chapter 30, verse 6. David being a king, I'm sure he had a lot of worries and stresses on him. He had um, a lot of peoples, a lot of uh, nations coming against him as the leader of Israel. And it says, David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him, because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. He strengthened himself in the Lord his God. You can see the intentionality of David looking to God as his source of strength, as his source of sustaining spiritual life in this world, as his source of joy, and we need to do the same. And I think the key comes back to something I think I've said here before. You know, it's that the orientation orientation of our hearts that the vertical determines the horizontal our relationship and our faith this way will extend and it will be seen in the outside world around us by how we then extend that and, and demonstrate that in the lives around us that horizontal so when our faith is in christ and we have our eyes and our gaze fixed heavenward 
that then will determine what we determine the degree to which we express it outwardly. So that joy is, is the same for us, that when we have this right, when we have our faith locked in on him, and I know that'll be challenged often, and we may not, we're not going to live that out perfectly, but the better this is, the better this, this joy will be had in our lives, this rejoicing in Christ. One commentator says of Paul that joy was Paul's outlook because Jesus was Paul's uplook. I think that was a, a really good uh, phrase to make about this verse. So rejoice in the Lord, and then Paul says, to write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it is safe for you. Paul knows that he is repeating himself, and he is not at all bothered by it. Peter also had much the same heart as Paul, because I think like any good pastor, they shouldn't remind repeating themselves, especially about the really important things. In fact, I think that's what makes someone a good educator when they value repetition. And it's like an athlete who is training themselves, um, creating that muscle memory, that there is no harm in repeating the good things of God. And Paul is being intentional about repeating it here. Um, like I said, Peter also does the same thing. If you see, look in 2 Peter 1, 13 through 15, you don't have to turn there, but Peter says, I think it right, as long as I'm in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will, will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. So there's this continuance of repetition these things that are truly important that we really need to understand. And Paul is reminding the Philippian believers, is reminding us to rejoice in the Lord. And he says that in doing so, it is safe for you. He says he does this, he repetition, he wants this to get really into their minds because it is safe for you. And why would he say something like that? That rejoicing is, is safe for us, and that's why we need to be reminded of it. And I think it's because in the many various places that we find ourselves, there will be those who are joy stillers. Those who, you know, and the enemy influencing those to try to rob the joy away. We will find them in our workplaces. We will find them, you know, out on the streets. We will find them, we'll find them in Walmart. That's a certainty. Uh, we'll find them in our homes. We will find them in our churches. We'll find them in our churches. And here I think the joy stealers that Paul is inferring here are those that are in the churches. The legalists who would minimize this, the grace aspect of our salvation and try and add works. And it is difficult to maintain joy when those around you are imposing restrictions and laws that are not even biblical in attempt to have you believe that somehow there is some mixture of human effort in with the grace of God. I think that goes well with the, the children's story that uh, Stephen brought to our young. And there are legalists out there who will attach themselves to every congregation. And that's why we need to beware. And I think that Paul is writing of these legalists being joyous stealers based on what he says in the following verse. So look at there with me, verse 2 now. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Now, I'm reading from the ESV translation. 
And if you counted it with me, we have three lookouts there. <laughs> lookout, lookout, lookout. If you're reading from another translation, I think maybe NASB says, beware, 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 it's saying the same thing here. Each one of those marks off a different warning, but all having to do with legalism. Paul is delivering a very strong warning in this verse, and it centers around the false teachers of what was called Judaism during Paul's day. And those within the Christian church, those who even had named the name of Christ, were now going back and wanting to mix in some of the traditions, some of the legalism into and in with salvation by grace alone. Those that believed you needed both in order to be right with God. And the form of legalism arose in the early church. And we find where this came to a head in Acts chapter 15. There was a lot of excitement in the early church. You know, Paul and Barnabas had been out just sharing the gospel in all these other regions outside of Jerusalem, outside of Judea. The gospel was going out to the ends of the earth. And here come the joy killers. Here come the joy stealers. (laughs) And it's in the form of the Judaizers, the legalists. Look at Acts chapter 15. Verses 1 through 2. And I believe this is who Paul is referring to here. Acts 15, 1 through 2. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had so, no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So they were going to take it up with the Jerusalem council because this was a serious error that was starting to creep in to the early church. And those that were wanting to now go back and bring in these forms of, of rituals and traditions and blend them somehow in with the gospel of grace. And there had been great excitement. And all of a sudden where the great excitement was, and we see the gospel advancing beyond Jerusalem, spreading everywhere, the lives were being changed. People were growing in their relationship with the Lord through faith in Jesus Christ. They were growing in this joy, but along come, come those who were attempting to add to the work of Christ and all that Christ had accomplished once and for all on the cross. And we can still see that is very present today in our churches. A list of rules to keep, and you have to go through those rules to be right with God. Or even taking it to an experience, you have to do this in your worship in order to really have a relationship with God. It has to be an outward expression that is seen by everyone that that is what you need to be saved. Being joyful, though, means being watchful. And that means being watchful over the things that can come in and that can rob your joy in the Lord. This was no different to the church in Thessalonica. Paul would say it this way in 1 Thessalonians five sixteen through 18. Rejoice always, Pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Paul is laying out somewhat of a recipe here, I think, for coming against and attacking those who would be the joy stealers or the joy killers. I believe that Paul follows rejoice always here with praying without ceasing because there is watchfulness in our prayers. 
Because he's saying, beware, beware, beware. And one of the things we do in our prayer is that we are watchful in our prayers and asking for God to stand guard over this joy, to not let the joy stealers rob it from us. I didn't really want to jump ahead to this passage, but in Philippians 4, if you move ahead there, I'm sure there'll be more for us there when we actually get to it in our study of Philippians, but Paul here is speaking of a joy and the maintenance of that joy in a believer's life. In Philippians 4, 4 through 7, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. And here it is, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And Paul has in mind here himself being under a Roman guard, that we need a guard over our heart. He has envisioned these Roman guards standing watch over our hearts to repel those things that would be joy stealers or joy killers in our lives. And we do that by going to God through prayer and supplication and with thanksgiving in our hearts, letting our requests be made known to God. And then it follows, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. You remember back to the fruit of the Spirit, where the fruit of the Spirit is love, and then it is joy, and that's what he says to the Philippian believers, rejoice. And then he says, and the peace of God That's the third in the list of the fruit of the Spirit. So there may be something to that. Someone can do a study on that. But it's interesting that what follows joy here is the peace of God that surpasses all understanding. So being joyful means being watchful. And we need to be on watch for the false doctrine of legalism. Now, very strong words that Paul uses to describe them. Coming back to this verse, he says, Beware or look out for the dogs. And the origin of this word goes back to Deuteronomy chapter 23. Turn back there with me. Deuteronomy chapter 23. Because Paul isn't just pulling this insult out of the air. He's actually coming at them from Scripture that obviously the Jews would have known about. Chapter 23 beginning in verse 17. So the origin of this word goes back here, and what it describes is a male cult prostitute. None of the daughters of Israel shall be a cult prostitute, and none of the sons of Israel shall be a cult prostitute. You shall not bring the fee of a prostitute or the wages of a dog into the house of the Lord your God and payment for any vow, for both of these are an abomination to the Lord your God. This is a very stern warning. This is really a strong term that is used to describe these legalists. And it started out uh, being used by the Orthodox, Orthodox Jews to describe the Gentiles. So they would use the word dog to describe a Gentile, and it is interesting and it's also powerful that Paul is taking this insult that they would use for a Gentile and he's turning it back on them, using their own insults against those that say you have to keep the laws of Moses in order to be saved. And I know that many of us here may not understand this insult very well because we think about maybe the dogs that we have in our homes, and you know, we've taken to calling them fur babies and that kind of thing, but this is not the type of dog that, uh, that Paul is referring to. 
This is not our loving uh, pet who brings us a lot, of, a lot of happiness. But the type of dog here is one that is a ferocious scavenger. This is a mangy, scruffy, mean dog that roams the streets looking for its next meal, and it will do anything to get that meal. Nothing will stand between the dog and it getting its meal. So this is to describe the legalists that tear and devour the grace of God. It's not to describe my yellow lab back home who is waiting anxiously for me. Now the second beware here is to beware of the evil workers. There are those that can be evil all the while they are thinking that they are doing good. And Paul is calling them evil workers. This is the Pharisees and Judaizers, and they were good at showing off their external works. And some of those who even professed Christ were now saying that you needed grace plus something else. And that something else was normally in the form of something that they took in from Judaism and brought into the Christian faith. And we still see that going on today. Legalists believe that you get right with God by doing good works. Paul says those are evil workers. And why would he dare do this? Why would he call them evil workers? Well, it's because what they were doing was outright heresy. It was saying that the work of Jesus Christ on the cross was not good enough. It was saying the work of Jesus Christ on the cross was insufficient, that I have to add some work to now make it complete. This is uh, an abomination. I mean, when Paul, you see how he enters or introduces the book of Galatians, he gets the, the greeting out of the way with really quick, and he said, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? And he was, they have started to bring in legalism back into the early church. And he, he really calls this out very strongly. It is so damaging to a church when we begin to blend in something else with God's grace. When Jesus hung his head on the cross, when he breathed out the words, it is finished, tetelestai, it meant that the debt was paid in full, fully reconciled to God. Now, I do feel it necessary to just break in here to remind us that when we are saved, it doesn't mean that now we are free to go and indulge in every sin imaginable and presume upon God's grace as if it's just this magical covering over us and we don't need to you know, do any good works that there's not, not, we just bought fire insurance in a sense. And if that is how you feel, then you really need to evaluate if you are really saved. Good works are a byproduct of an authentic relationship with God. If it was true faith and true repentance, then working out of you should be good works for the glory of God. I think we covered it in Philippians already that, you know, that we should work out our own salvation with much fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. The God working in you is producing an outworking of these things in our life. It's producing an outworking of joy. It's producing an outworking of the fruit of his spirit and love and patience. In Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, we We really key in on those verses, but what follows it in verse 10 is just as important because we know it is by grace that we have been saved through faith, and this is not of our own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, lest any man should boast. But then verse 10 is very important to include with that passage, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So I wanted to insert this in here is that we are not just set on autopilot, just 
thinking that we're good to go, but rather God in us, if it's a saving faith, He's going to work out something with His, his workmanship now, created in Christ Jesus for good works. The problem lies with those that would think that the works becomes the basis of the relationship. That we are saved by grace, but we are saved unto good works for God. And when someone makes them the basis of our relationship, then they become evil works. And that is why Paul warns so strongly, look out or beware for the evildoers. And then the third mark is beware of the mutilation. And I think some translations here have the false circumcision. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. And that word for mutilate is katame. And that means to cut up. That means a false circumcision is what Paul is calling it here. Mutilation has to do with a physical act. Mutilation is a strong insult to use for something that was so sacred to the Jews because it symbolized God's special covenant with the tribe of Israel And so that was the symbol of national relationship that the Jews had with God. And it symbolized the reality of the flesh self cut away. But even the law acknowledged that circumcision alone was insufficient to please God. And even the the law and the prophets recognized and pointed ahead at one who would fulfill the law completely in Christ. No longer would it be about externalities like circumcision, but then it would be what has taken place in the heart. Deuteronomy 10, 15 through, 6, 15 through 16, Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples as you are this day. Verse 16, Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. So even the law pointed forward and recognized this more internal cleansing of the conscience that we needed in our hearts. But now that the Jews' Messiah had come, Jesus Christ, to redeem them from the law and fulfill God's covenant, it was no longer necessary as an outward act. God was fully pleased with the Son's sacrifice to cover our sins and to enter into covenant relationship with God, now through Christ's blood. passage of Scripture that reminds us of this is Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26. Those who would think that maybe Christ's work on the cross somehow was lacking, Paul would remind them that in verse 21 of chapter 3 of Romans, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. And this was to show God's righteousness, because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. In all that Paul said there, he never once said, for it was man, or it was a woman, or it was anything other than God brought this. God is the giver of the righteousness that we need, the perfect righteousness of Christ. He is the one that came in Christ to be the propitiation, to be received by His His blood, not ours. There is nothing that we do to work ourselves into His favor. It is by grace. We are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. 
the Judaizers were still using it, using circumcision as a means by which one obtained salvation. Even those who professed Christ and knew about his sacrificial death, they were seeking to add the work of circumcision into their salvation and forcing others to do the same. And later in that Acts chapter 15, when they recognized this was infiltrating the church, they went to Jerusalem, to the Jerusalem church there, the Christian church, and they met with other Jewish men, and they came up with this letter uh, to write to all the churches that would pretty much dismiss these forms of legalisms, but in order to, for the Christian brothers to get along, they would adopt certain things, but definitely there was no work that was added to our salvation. Circumcision, everything had been fulfilled in Christ, and we need to recognize that there is no human achievement that can accomplish what God has already done for us through the cross of Calvary. I've talked with a lot of people who will say that they have been baptized, and that means that they are saved, but then you observe their behavior, and you don't see any evidence of salvation in their life, no fruit of the Spirit, and yet they truly think that because they got put into water and and pulled up out of the water again, that somehow that saved them. That was not a true saving faith. That is symbolic of what Christ has done in us to circumcise our heart, to make us new. Equating the formality of the ritual with being saved. It is adding a ritual of man to salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We also see in churches today that we add in some kind of external work to the salvation And you will hear people say that if you have not spoken in tongues, then you are not truly saved. If you have not been baptized, then you are not truly saved. If you have not performed some kind of a miracle, or at a minimum, you know, witnessed a a vision of the Virgin Mary, (laughs) then you are not truly saved. That is all forms of legalism that is still very prevalent in our churches today. We need to beware, beware, beware. Coming back to Paul using this term mutilation, this is also a, an insult, kind of like dogs, and we find the history of this word back in the Old Testament again. Go to 1 Kings chapter 18. Once you turn there and you begin to read a little bit of it, you'll know uh, what this is referring to. This is a, a very common and popular story, I think, out of the Old Testament. Here are the prophets of Baal. They have challenged the God, <laughs> uh, the true God, and there is a, a battle going on here, a battle about to start between Elijah and the prophets of Baal into whose God is the real God. And obviously we know the outcome of this, but thinking of this word mutilation and how Paul is using it, this is where it comes from. 1 Kings 18, verse 25, Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose for yourself one bull and prepare it first for your many. Call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given them, and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered, and they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is God. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. And here's what the prophets of Baal did. They they cried aloud, 
and they cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. So when Paul says, look out for those who are the mutilation, he's likening them to these pagan priests. Paul is saying their circumcision is a meaningless form of pagan ritualism. That's what it had become. Hmm. Verse 3, For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. We are the circumcision. So we find in this verse the marks of a true believer. So we looked at these marks of what we need to be aware of. But here we need to see if these are things that exist in our lives. We are the circumcision, and the one that Paul is referring to is the ones that are those who are the people that are reborn. Those that have circumcised, therefore, the foreskin of their heart and being no longer stubborn, that God has changed us, that he has regenerated us, and he has made us new. He has called us to himself in salvation. A legalist places at a minimum a degree of confidence in the flesh. That somehow we willed or worked our way into it, but it is just the opposite. We did nothing to earn our salvation. So a true believer, in contrast to the legalist, is one who places no confidence in the flesh. That is what sets Christianity apart, really, from all other religions. Because if you, if you distill all of it down, you take all the religions of the world, you distill them down, you've got two religions, really. You've got a religion that is of human accomplishment, and then you have the religion that is a divine accomplishment. You have human achievement and divine accomplishment. And the, the Christian God of the Bible is the one of divine accomplishment, of the one who came and did the work himself, who gives us of his grace freely for those who put their faith in him and, and repent of their sin. God did it all. Another one of the verses I think that really... <clears throat> points this out very clearly is in Titus chapter 3, verses 4 through 7. Had a conversation a couple of weeks ago with a, a man who was Jehovah's Witness and uh, very much a, a false religion that mixes in man's work with God's work. And so I challenged him with this scripture, and he, he really didn't have any answer for it. But starting in verse 4 of chapter 3 of Titus, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom God Poured out, poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Being justified by His grace, I didn't find anything. Being justified by grace plus something, by His grace alone. I mean, isn't that such an incredible display of God's divine grace? There, in this transaction that is described here in Titus 3, 4 through 7, you see the encompassing work of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit 
I don't know if you saw it there, but we have the kindness of God, our Savior, appeared. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing and regeneration of who? Renewal of the Holy Spirit. God the Father, we have God the Holy Spirit, whom he poured on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. We have the triune Godhead in that perfect, completed work of the cross for our sake, on our behalf, by his grace alone. For we are the circumcision. And what is implied there is that we are the true circumcision. We are the, those, those spiritually circumcised. Not a meaningless outward mark, but it is an inward mark. Romans two twenty-eight through 9, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. The inward reality that the outward ritual speaks to. The inward reality that the outward ritual speaks to. It's like a, a wedding ring. <clears throat> if I take off my wedding ring, it won't come off. That's probably intentional. <laughs> she fattened me up and now it won't come off. <laughs> if I try to take this off and remove it, and I actually get it off, and I will set it somewhere, does that mean that we are no longer married? Does that mean that that covenant relationship is somehow severed because I removed that ring? No, this is just symbolic of a covenant relationship that we have made before God. And all those who you married, I hope you understand that, that this is just something that is symbolic, and you can't take it off and just be out of it all of a sudden. <laughs> God doesn't excuse that. That is, that is similar to what the circumcision of the heart is now for us. Right? That's a symbol, it's, it's, baptism is the same thing. The baptism didn't save you. It's what God already did by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. That was something internal. That is what saved us. It's not the baptism that saved us. So we are true worshipers. We are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. The inward over and against the outward. Uh, think about the Samaritan woman at the well here. I think that's in, found in John chapter 4. And Jesus is confronting her about all these, you know, relationships that she's had in her life. He knows her through and through, and she's wondering, wow, this man must be something special. He's asking her about their worship, and she's talking, she's deflecting to all these physical places. She said, well, Jews worship in Jerusalem. They don't like us there. We, we worship on this mountain over here. And Jesus says, no, no, true worshipers a time is coming, a time has now come where the true worshipers will worship me in spirit and in truth, will worship God in spirit and in truth. So it's all a matter of the heart. It's in the spiritual. And her deflecting was like sometimes we try to say, well, you know, I, I worship him at this church and I worship him at this church. Where are you worshiping him at work? Where are you worshiping him in your home? No, we're worshiping him in spirit and truth. We don't know a special place at this altar to come to we don't need to go into a, a confessional back here in a room or anything like that to worship God in spirit and truth. It all takes place here because He indwells us by His Holy Spirit. We are joined in with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in a, in a relationship with the triune Godhead. Jesus says those who worship Him, worship Him in spirit and truth. It is real, it is authentic, and it is based upon the truth of His Word. And we glory in Christ Jesus. And I think this is about celebrating what Jesus has accomplished for us. 
A lot of people think that that celebration occurs when we sing songs and therefore we need to run up and down the aisles and we need to do a little dance in place and that's symbolic of our worship of him. But even that worship, if if it's authentic, it's going to be taking place inside, right? And it's going to be grounded in truth and that's why we, we are challenged and we are encouraged by the songs that our worship team selects in being sure that we're singing things that are scriptural, and not just things that are emotional-based because, you know, we just want to sing a, what I would call like those, those boyfriend-girlfriend songs to our sovereign God. And we want to think, sing things that are about Him, that truly reflect Him. I'm getting on my soapbox, but <laughs> one commentator asks, Is following Him our highest ideal? Is the pursuit of His well-done our loftiest endeavor? You see, a legalist minimizes the work of Christ and maximizes the work of man. Never sure if they've worked hard enough. Never any joy in that. There's only shame. There's only the weight and the burden of, did I do enough? And I'm so thankful, so grateful that Jesus paid it all. I mean, that's what we sing. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. So we put no confidence in the flesh. Coming back to these six, what seem to be simple words, we depend totally on Jesus Christ. And I think that should bring a great sigh of relief to all of us. And when we walk in this view, we rejoice in Christ. We rejoice in a life that is lived for his glory and not our own. We're not counting the cost, but like Paul will say later on, that we're pressing on towards the upward call of Christ Jesus. We're longing for our heavenly home when we will finally meet Jesus face to face. Those are the things that we rejoice in. Not about keeping rituals or ceremonies. I don't know what kind of religious backgrounds that some of you come from, but maybe there is still that weight of the rituals and the formalities that are weighing you down. I know I had to cast off a a number of them, a lot of baggage that I took on, just assuming that these things of tradition in the past were in Scripture. But then when I really started to study Scripture and question why was I doing those things, they just began to fall off like scales. Maybe some of that needs to come off you today. We are the ones who bear this enormous worldly weight around you know, Jesus promises that when you come in under his yoke of salvation, that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. And it doesn't promise freedom from hardship and pain. That's not what that verse is saying. But it means a life filled with joy of knowing that we walk side by side with a Savior who has accomplished it all. And you can leave all of your human efforts at the cross and look to him and him alone. The only thing we contribute to our salvation, I think maybe Stephen mentioned this in the kids' message, is we just contribute our sin. We just bring it there. That's all I have. All you bring, His grace is sufficient to save you to the uttermost, once and for all, a completed work. And as Stephen and the worship team come up here and play this last song, I just want to encourage you to take that time to pray to God, ask Him to reveal anything that may be just tucked away in there that's hidden in your heart that you you can hide really well from man but you know you can't hide it from yourself or God 
and that you take that time to just confess that. And maybe it's the work that you've been believing all along that was part of your salvation, that you were boasting in something that you did. And maybe it is just a sin that you've been struggling with and you need to come to God in agreement about that sin and confess and repent of it today. No, it's not about a place here at the altar. If I was to make your salvation about, well, did you come forward at the church and did you say that prayer with the preacher up there and then did you write your name on a card and then say, okay, well, you're good to go, you're saved, that would be a ceremonial, that would be traditional-based kind of salvation. The true worshipers will worship Him in spirit and truth. Where we come to worship, where we come to confess, we do it right where we are. We do it in sincerity, we do it in truth, knowing our God sees everything about us right now, right here. You have nothing to hide before Him. Let's pray. Father, we come to You this morning. We thank You for Your Word. We pray that As we contemplate these things, there's a lot of heavy things here, Lord, and Paul has given us some strict warnings about those who would attempt to insert something that is of man into the work that you have already done for us, that is by your grace that we have been saved. And so help us to see the things that might be there in our lives where we are just as guilty as those who are described as as the dogs or the evildoers. We do not want to be counted among them, Lord, and we pray that you would just cleanse our hearts and show us, Father, the things that maybe we've wandered into, maybe we've dabbled in them. God, they're so destructive, and I just pray that we are freed from those things, freed for joyful obedience in the Lord, all to your glory, all because of the sake of your name. We thank you and we praise you for this. We just want to profess our love for you in our time of worship. God, just uh, please guide us in that time. And as we are dismissed here as well, I pray that we would just turn these things around in our mind, that we would just be reminded of what it is to rejoice in the Lord and that we are intentional about it, knowing that there are joy stealers out there, knowing that the enemy would want to attack us at our joy. And God, that we would just truly rise up over those things, knowing that you in us. We thank you, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.